Good morning. Thanks to Deborah for plugging my book. So uh, since she did that, I'm going to try to follow the uh, biblical command to rejoice with those who rejoice and say um, congratulations to the Cowboys fans out there um, if, you're, if you're there. That was hard for me. I hope you realize that. Uh, if you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament, to, to the first third of your Bible, and that is to the book of First Kings today. And we're going to do a standalone message that's not part of our uh, current series. And we're going to do that for the new year, for this, for this new year, 2019, that we've just uh, jumped into. So First Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be today. Most of you know that my, my primary job, my day job, is not as a pastor, but as a professor. And I teach college students here in town at Oklahoma Wesleyan University, teach them Bible and, and theology classes. And one of the questions that is often asked today because of the expense of, of college education and all that goes with that is, um, why college? Why would you send your son or daughter to be taught by somebody like me? Uh, why, why go to college? And probably many of you have been to college, not everybody, but one of the answers, one of the most common answers that's given is that the reason you go to college, especially if you ask maybe somebody in the school of business or something like that, is you go to college to maximize your earning potential. You go to college because that way maybe you can get a job that pays more. And that's not always, that's not always the case, right? You can see why they don't ask me to be in the admissions department. But, uh, but that's one of the reasons that's given. You go to college to, to maximize your earning potential. Uh, another answer that's given, if you, uh, if you watch certain movies, maybe with John Belushi, or uh, if you follow certain Instagram feeds, is that college isn't about earning potential. You go to college to maximize your partying potential. And that is the view of college that is put out in the pop culture. You go to college to cut loose, to sow your wild oats, right? And that's the purpose, some would say, for going to a university. Not everybody. Not everybody would say that. Somebody else might say, next slide, that the reason you go to college is to maximize your athletic potential. You're an athlete, and you go to college to play sports. And I teach lots and lots of athletes who go to college, yeah, to get an education, yeah, because it seems fun, but, but primarily because they want to keep playing the sport that they love, the sport that they've played for, for years and years to maximize your athletic potential. Next slide. To maximize your marriage potential. And I say this laughing, but to be honest, it worked out pretty well for me, right? I met Brianna our freshman year of college. We started dating in college, and long story short, see what I did there? Um, we now have four kids. So you, you go to college not just to earn more, not just to have fun, not just to play a sport, but you go to college maybe to meet the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. If you are really idealistic and the person who maybe annoys other people in a certain way with your idealism, you might say, it's not, it's not any of those things. I go to maximize my potential, potential, right? My whole being, to, to read the great works of literature, 
to, to be all that I can be, to maximize my potential, potential. And then there's maybe the most common answer that I get from freshman students in a sort of text messaging format, and that is, I don't really know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like asking why fourth grade? I mean, it's, it's the one after third grade, and college is the one after high school. Um, like, everybody does it now, and so, yeah, I'm here. I don't necessarily know what I want to do, but uh, I'm here. Why are we talking about this? Um, well, the reason we're talking about it is if you ask me why, uh, why college for the students that I do teach, I think college from a Christian perspective is about maximizing your calling. It's about finding your calling. And it's about turning from a star into a rocket. And I need to explain that. A star, if you think about our sun and our solar system, our sun is a star. That's about the extent of my astronomical knowledge. But everything orbits around it. It is the center. And everything orbits around it. And if we're really honest, many of us are tempted in this life to view ourselves a bit like that, a bit like a star, a bit like our sun, where everything orbits around us. And I think one of the things that the gospel calls us to do is to shift our perspective from being a star that everything sort of orbits around, I am the center of the universe, to a rocket, into a person that's pointed at something bigger and other than themselves. And I'm talking about that because it's not just an important message if you're thinking about college. Most of you are not, and I realize that. But it's an important message if we're thinking about how to frame a new year, um, a new start in the first sermon in this new year. I, I came across a quote recently by a famous author. He's on the next slide. I've got a picture, uh, picture of him. He's a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace, and he's a, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, he wrote a, he wrote a famous uh, book called Infinite Jest, which you may or may not have read. He was a, a secular atheist, novelist, and, and by all accounts, a, a wonderful, loving person who, who tragically committed suicide at a young age. But Foster has this quote that sort of ties in with this star versus rocket dichotomy. And he says this, I don't think he's being rude or narcissistic, I think he's just being honest. He says, everything in my own immediate experience supports my belief, my deep belief, that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. You're like, wow, that doesn't sound like a... <laughs> here's the deal. You might say, well, what a narcissist, right? I think Wallace, in some ways, is saying something that many of us believe but would never say. That just from our frame of reference, look, I'm just looking out of my head, and from my perspective, everything stands in relation to me. And from my perspective, I kind of seem like the point, Right? And so one of the points of the gospel is to shift that perspective. 
And so I want to look at two words today before we read our passage, two words to frame this new year. The first is calling. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about New Year's resolutions. The Bible doesn't talk at all about that. The Bible does talk about callings, that, that everyone is called to something bigger than themselves. And that that calling is, while it may be difficult in certain ways, it is an adventure. It's a calling to the best life that God has for you. And so I want to frame this New Year's message not as sometimes New Year's messages are framed, like, you better get it together this year, mister, um, but as a calling to a fresh start and to a fresh adventure. And I want to do that by looking at the story of Elijah and Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. So if you've got your Bible, you can, you can turn there. A little bit of backstory. Um, if, you, if you know the story of Elijah, you know that he was God's prophet. He was God's megaphone to the wayward people of Israel. And he spoke on behalf of God and to Israel during a time of rebellion and pain and, and strife. He was one of the greatest prophets. And when we pick up the story today, he is fresh off of his greatest triumph that took place at a, at a place called Mount Carmel. And at Mount Carmel, Elijah faced down the prophets of Baal, the prophets of a false god, and he was willing to sort of like put his money where his mouth was and say, okay, let's see who the real God is. You pray to your God, we'll see if he sends fire from heaven. I'll pray to my God, we'll see if he sends fire from heaven. And lo and behold, the God of Elijah showed up and he burned up the sacrifice despite the fact that it was drenched in water and this sort of Mount Carmel moment was the high point of Elijah's whole career. And yet, he comes down from the mountain and he slips into a suicidal depression. And he ends up under a broom tree asking God, sort of David Foster Wallace-like, to end his life. And that's the reality of, of where we pick up the story. And I love how God speaks to Elijah because he speaks in the most practical and simple of terms. He doesn't give him a sermon. He says, okay, um, eat something. <laughs> Get something to eat. Number two, take a nap, right? And number three, I'm going to send you somebody to be a helper, I'm going to send you a friend. I'm going to send you a protege. And it's this guy by the name of Elisha. And that's where we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 19, talking about new callings for a, for a new year. If you've got your Bible, 1 Kings 19, verse 19 says this. So Elijah went up from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. And he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself, Elisha, was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. And Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. 
what have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back, and he took his yoke of oxen, and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is God's word. So the topic today is callings and and new adventures, new callings for a a new year. And again, it's not the kind of message that's a sort of like get it together. Uh, I saw somebody on Instagram post recently that around New Year's, you see a lot of posts and just all throughout the year that are basically like you have to slay it, crush it, own it. They're all like very violent metaphors for what you're going to do with your day. And yet most of us are not slaying or crushing anything really. And so I don't want this message to be like that. It's not about slaying or crushing anything necessarily. It's about your calling for this year. And one of the first things that stands out about this story is that the the thing that Elisha is called to is ministry. He's called to be a minister. And that's something that's true of the prophets in a really pronounced way, but it's something that's true of all Christians. All Christians are called to be ministers in a particular area of life. And maybe the first observation we could say about this call that we have is that the work of ministry can be both hard and lonely. This year, God is calling you to be a minister if you're a follower of Jesus, and that is going to involve ministry in some situations that are complicated, that are difficult, that are ambiguous in terms of how you should handle a situation. The work of ministry can be both hard and lonely. And we see that because when we pick up the story with Elijah, he's sitting under the broom tree, fresh off of the biggest success of his career, his life, and he's asking God to kill him. He feels completely alone, and he says, he says, I am the only one left. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. God, I'm the only one in this office or this cubicle or this family who really is, is, is trying to pursue you. I feel alone. I feel unheard. I feel unhelped. The work of ministry can be difficult, not just for pastors, but for all Christians. It carries psychological risks, and it carries weight. And it strikes me that it's, it's not a coincidence that Elisha's low point comes on the heels of his highest high. Maybe that's been that way for you. I remember recently when, um, when it was uh, announced that Anthony Bourdain had committed suicide, and when you talk to his friends, his friends repeatedly said, I've never seen him so happy. I've never seen him so, he just seemed like he was doing so well. And a buddy of mine, he says, whenever somebody says that, I always get worried. Because it seems that the same roller coaster ride that makes you really high can also bring you down. And it was that way, not just for celebrities like Bourdain, it was absolutely that way for prophets like Elijah. And he goes from his highest high to his lowest low. The work of ministry can be hard, can be lonely. The work is 
is endless. It's endless for pastors, for parents, for small group leaders. The fastest growing demographic you've heard probably repeatedly from pollsters and the like in the United States of America, the fastest religious demographic in growth is the category that's been ostensibly labeled none. Not an adherent to any religion. And that label none is the fastest growing religious descriptor in the lexicon. The work is endless. And so maybe the first call for a sermon on callings and new years and new adventures is to look forward into this year to face it with a kind of hopeful realism. Hopeful realism that acknowledges that there will be some difficult roads this year. You don't have the highs without the lows. You don't have the Mount Carmel without the broom tree. And that calls us to face new adventures with what I would call a kind of hopeful realism. And I don't know that we always do that with our resolutions, right? I have friends who are in the fitness industry. <laughs> Memberships, woo, in January, right? There is not a hopeful realism. There is a hopeful anti-realism in many cases on what this next year is going to entail. And for many of us, the call is to face it not with an undue sort of pipe dream-like optimism, but with a sort of hopeful realism that says that there will be difficult roads. The work of ministry is both hard and lonely. Second observation, second thing on your update, um, you can see that there. It says this, the way God's work advances, both then and now in Elijah's day and in our day, is by one generation passing the mantle to another. The way this work goes forward in Bartlesville for this new year or anywhere else is by one generation committing to pass the mantle to another. And I don't have a mantle. I'm not a biblical robe-wearing prophet, but I do have um, sport coats. I don't know if you've noticed that. When I'm preaching, um, one, of the, one of the members here says, they can always tell when I'm preaching because I'm wearing the coat. <laughs> and I threw him off last week. I didn't wear the coat. I wore the coat, but I wasn't preaching. And he's like, oh, it's all messed up. I thought you were speaking. This is my mantle. And so when I, when I talk about this passage to college students, this serves, usually it has elbow patches because you have to have like a name badge as a professor and that's sort of like that. And, and the prophet had a mantle too. It was a cloak. And it was the sign that this is my, this is my vocational marker, my mantle. And he takes it. Elijah, the old man, does, and he places it on the shoulders of Elisha, the young farmer, oxen-plowing guy, and he says, here you go. You've been drafted into the ministry. You've been, you've been drafted, and he puts his mantle on this, this next generation. Um, it's important to note, it's, it's often said, I'm going to put my jacket back on because it's like my safety blanket, like Linus or something. I, I can't preach without it. The church, it's often said, is always one generation away from extinction. It's a generational enterprise, and it's always one generation away from extinction. It's a, it's a relay race. Church history is a relay, and it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And anybody who's ever followed relays, I think I've said this before, knows that the riskiest part of a relay, especially in the 4x100, 
is the handoff. It's the transition. And that's the place where things often go wrong in the passing of the baton from one generation, from one runner to another. And yet it's essential. You've heard me quote the African proverb before in, in sermons, and it says, it says something like this, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's something that we see in this passage where Elijah realizes that he can't do it alone. He can't do ministry as a solo career. He needs, he needs to pass the mantle to the next generation. And God's work goes forward by, by doing that. Maybe, maybe the application or the question for you as we head into this new year and you think about what's my ministry calling this year, maybe the application is what am I going to do to help the handoff? What am I going to do to pass the mantle into this next generation? And for some of you, if you're like a stage of life where Brianna and I are, it seems pretty obvious because we're surrounded like by, by little versions of us. They're, they're swarming us. We have four little kids. And so for us, one of the ways that we're focusing on passing the mantle is by, is by parenting and trying to parent on purpose rather than on accident. Maybe that's one of the ways that you're called to pass the mantle, by, by taking seriously your calling as a spiritual leader to, to your kids to pass the mantle. Maybe you're a teacher in one way or another, teacher of elementary students, teacher of junior high or high school, or like me, a teacher of, of college students. Maybe you're not a teacher in a university or, in a, or a school or, or anything like that, but you're involved in training others in your work and enabling the next generation. And, and one of the things that is most difficult, it seems to me, is for one generation to look at the next not as a threat or as an annoyance, but as a crucial part of this calling. And generations like to sort of throw rhetorical bombs at one another. And so the millennials and the baby boomers, and on one against each other. Maybe your calling is to look at those around you from a younger generation, not as annoyances, but as people that you're called to pass the mantle to, to teach, to divest, to pray for them. And this is something that I've seen Pastor Rod He's not here today, so I'm going to talk about him. But uh, he, he, I, I've seen him model this just incredibly with, with the, the bringing me in to preach once a month and absolutely no, I mean, just, just welcoming and affirming and teaching, right, and, and leading well. And what is he doing? He's passing the mantle, not just to me, but to all of the others in this church to lead and to serve well, the way God's work advances is by one generation passing the mantle. This year, what are you going to do to help with, with the handoff? The handoff. Number three. Third thing I think the passage teaches us. Um, callings and adventures come as interruptions. God comes to us as interruptions. 
right? If you think about the Gospels, this is so true. Like, how many people encounter Jesus on the way, right? He's on the way somewhere, and he encounters someone. And I don't know about you, I just drove 19 hours to Florida. I had no ministry encounters planned for on the way, right? The only goal was getting there alive, right? In a minivan with four kids. Like, I had no plans for on the way ministry, right? Um, callings and, and adventures come as interruptions, and it's absolutely true for Elisha. What's he doing? What's he doing in the passage? He's doing his job. He's farming. He's leading 12 yoke of oxen to break up the ground to feed his family and those around him. And he has a really good job. I have to imagine that in the ancient world, to have 12 yoke of oxen was a big deal, right? I don't know, like, different kinds of tractors and combines today, but I imagine this was like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of that really, like the nicest, newest combine with the, with the air-conditioned cab and the GPS-guided steering. To have 12 yoke of oxen was a big deal. And he's in the middle of his job leading these oxen, and his calling comes as a massive, massive interruption. And he allows it to redirect him. He allows it to happen. And so maybe one of the questions is, this year, are you ready for the call of God to come in the interruptions? Are you open to the voice of God in interruptions? And not just in these pre-planned moments. Some of you are like me and you like to have everything lined up in order and a very regimented schedule and interruptions just sort of make you really nervous and, and anxious and yet God comes to us in the interruptions. Brianna has a shirt or she, I, she was talking about buying it, I don't know, and it says, my name is mom but you can call me mom, 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 mom. Because <laughs> that's what your kids do when they're interrupting you and they do it constantly. And she says repeatedly, you've heard me say it before, she who hinders my task is my task. Will I hear the voice of God in the mom, 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 in the interruptions on the way and not just in the Sunday morning 9.15 pre-planned events? Will we be open to callings that come as interruptions? That's the third insight for this new year. A fourth one. Um, when we read the passage, it's pretty clear. For Elisha, the calling is costly. And it's true for him, but it's true for every person all throughout the biblical storyline that Jesus or God has ever called. Your calling will cost you something. Your calling will cost you something. It might cost you in terms of the way you order your finances. It might cost you in the way you order your time. It might cost you in the way you order your schedule or your career. But the, the thing that we can be certain of is that whatever calling God has for you, it, it will cost you something. Verse 20 says this, uh, Elijah, he says, go back. He says to Elisha, go back 
Elijah replied. And then he says this. It's a question. He says, what have I done to you? Right? Which is the strangest, like, congratulations I've ever heard. Right? When we have ordination services, you know, we, we usually give them the, the new ordinands, the new pastors a Bible. We say congratulations, right? But here's, a, here's the ordination service that Elijah gives. What have I done? <laughs> I'm so sorry. And you have to imagine, like, Elijah, he's just put on the mantle, and he's like, what? what? I thought this meant that I got to be the guy, the, the mouthpiece for God, the Billy Graham, like this, you know, this, and, and you're, you're, you're passing the baton, and you're saying, I'm sorry? What have I done to you? And my sense is that all those, in, those incredible benefits that come from being in ministry, what Elijah means in that moment and where his mind goes is not to the mountaintop of Carmel, but to the broom tree at the bottom. That ministry costs something. And for some of us, it's cost friendships where we've thought, like, this person, like, I, now I'm doing what God has called me to, and they no longer want to hang out with me. For some of us, it's cost money. It's cost a variety of things. But your calling will cost you. And it comes from Elijah, not with a congrats, but with an I'm sorry. With an I'm sorry. And I've said this before, but there are so many different types of callings. And when I preach this message or when I talk about this topic with college students, sometimes the de facto response is, well, you're trying to make me a ministry major. And I am because that's really good for my department. But I'm not. Because the call to ministry is not, again, it's not for pastors explicitly or exclusively. It's for everybody. And you've heard me tell the story of, of a family member of mine who sells pork for a living and uses that, which for the ancient Hebrews would be seen as like the ultimate abomination, to fund missions efforts in Africa and elsewhere. And I often tell ministry like students that, thank God he didn't become a pastor. Because that's not his calling. It's my calling, but it's not his calling. And so the call for this new year is not just to accept a calling, but to accept your calling. And the one, the mantle that God has for you, whatever, whatever the cost. And so the, the big idea for this message is, is essentially very, very simple. And the question that sort of precedes it is, what's the right response when God calls you to a new adventure? What is the only right response. And it's not just to say yes. Because that's what everybody does with New Year's resolutions. Yes, gym membership. <laughs> yes, set the alarm a little earlier for one week. Right? It's not just to say yes. What is the only right response when God calls you to a new adventure? And the only one is three words. Burn your plow. Burn it. Burn it. And I often have visual aids on stage, and the elders vetoed this one. We were going to slaughter, 
we were going to slaughter 12 yoke of oxen. We were going to burn a plow. It was going to be like, a, it's going to be awesome. It was like a kiss concert, you know. Uh, burn your plow. And you say, like, what's the bit about the burning? Why does Elisha commit this action while the townspeople probably loved it? Because like, who doesn't want fresh meat, fresh oxen meat? But just totally annihilated that beautiful combine that we talked about earlier with the GPS and the air-conditioned cab. Why does he burn his plow? But he absolutely does. It says, Elisha left his oxen, ran after Elisha. Elijah, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. Elijah says, I'm sorry. And then it says this. He took his yoke of oxen, he slaughtered them, he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and he set out to follow Elijah. You say, like, he could have followed him without killing the oxen. And he could have followed him without burning the plow. And so why does he do that? And I think he does it for the exact same reason that Jesus says when he's calling people. He says, don't, hey, don't turn back. Don't turn back. He who sets his hand to the plow and then turns back is not worthy of being my disciple. And you can't set your hand to the plow and turn back if you burn the plow. And so he burns it. You say, what is your plow in this, in this metaphor? Next slide. The plow is your abiding attachment to the life God didn't call you to. Your plow is your safety valve. Your plow is your procrastinating attachment to the life God didn't call you to. It would be like if, if Elisha said yes, but he kept that plow in the background. So just in case it didn't work out with the whole prophet thing, he could always go back to the farm. And sometimes when God calls us and we hear the voice of God, we do it a little like this. And this figuratively speaking, since we couldn't bring the oxen and the plow, this will serve as the plow. It's like, yeah, Jesus, I'll, I'll follow you, and I'm going to... And we, we stay attached to the life that God didn't call... We keep the plow. In fact, in some cases, we drag the plow. We say, Jesus, yes, but I'm going to harness this thing to my back, and I'm going to follow you, because then I have this sort of procrastinating safety valve. The plow is your attachment to the life God didn't call you to. And it's important to note, it's not always sinful, right? There's nothing sinful about plowing. There's nothing sinful about being an ancient farmer for Elisha. It's not like he's, you know, running a brothel or serving as a loan shark or some sort of gangster or something. He's a farmer. The plow isn't sinful. It just isn't what God was calling him to. It's just not your calling. And so for you, the question might be, what's my plow? What is the attachment to the life that God didn't call me to this year? What is that thing for me? Uh, maybe it's the idea that I don't want to change. I don't want to move. I don't want to make less money. I don't want to alter my schedule. I don't want to end that dating relationship. I don't want to change my habits. 
I don't want to stop procrastinating. The plow is the attachment to the life that God didn't call you to. And the only right response is not to just say yes in a sort of New Year's resolution, but to burn it. In the old analogy from ancient warfare, to burn the boats. And you know when the Vikings or the Greeks would sail to some battle, when the boats were in the harbor, the men didn't fight very hard because they could always run to the boats. And so the famous story from several great generals throughout ancient history was when they really wanted commitment, they'd burn the boats. Because when you can't go back, the motivation is to be brave and to step forward into a new adventure. And so that's my prayer for you this year. Not that you would make a resolution, just a resolution, but that you would sense God's calling in a new way, in a new adventure, that you would be clear-eyed about it, that you would be a realist, you would listen to his voice, that you would receive that mantle, however small it may be. Maybe it's just to, to serve in children's ministry. Maybe it's just to begin to pray with your spouse when you haven't been doing that. Maybe it's to alter your schedule in a very small way, and you start small. But my prayer is that you would hear the call of God, as Elisha did, despite the fact that it comes as an interruption, and that you would burn an attachment to the life that God didn't call you to, that you would burn the plow. And so in many ways, the perfect way to start a new year is not just with a challenge, but with communion. In a sense that whatever the year holds, God's presence is with us and for us and in us through his spirit. And so we're going to conclude today, um, not just with a challenge, but by celebrating communion. And the, the band will come and, and play and lead us as we sing together. But would you bow with me before we do that?